Hello and welcome to Impact Ed. I'm H.D. Chambers and I'm the superintendent of schools for the Ailey Independent School District. You're listening to our podcast and where we talk about multiple things, many things related to our school system and many things related to other areas of our of our community and our state that relate in some form or fashion to public education. So today is no different. We are joined by uh, two ladies who have spent their professional life and in many cases their personal life attempting to do something that uh, that most of us have come to realize is just about critical if we're going to continue to sustain our society and our economy and the, at the levels in which we, we expect that. And that is ensuring that every citizen in the, in the city of Houston and the greater Houston region uh, is literate can read, can write, can communicate on many different levels. So I'm joined today by uh, Ms. Marie Martinez. She is the coordinator for our early childhood pre-K programming. And if you don't know what that means, that's just basically kids who come to school before three and four years old. And uh, if you've ever raised a child, you know how challenging that is at three or four years old and trying to trying to keep them reined in. But, uh, but Marie is responsible for for overseeing the educational program that we offer our children uh, through four and five years old, particularly on the literacy, both mathematics and reading. And we're also joined by Dr. Julie Baker Fink, a longtime educator, and for the last several years has served as, and I'll have to let her tell you her title, but she's over the Barbara Bush Literacy President Foundation. President of the Barbara she's Bush. She's the she's president of Presidente. <laughs> Uh, and for those that listen to this podcast, you know that we had Mr. Neil Bush on several weeks ago, and he spoke from the family's perspective on the Bush uh, Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation. And Julie today is going to also speak on that, but also well, I'm not going to tell her what she's going to talk about. But we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about literacy. So with that, I'm going to thank you, ladies, for both joining us. Thank you. And I'm going to I'm going to ask Julie maybe just to give a little background on on her where she is, you know, where she's come from, and kind of how literacy became something as important as it is to her both personally and professionally, and then I'm going to let Marty do the same thing. Yeah, so, and thank Julie, you. thank you. Thank you, HD, for the invitation to be here and talk about such an important topic, one that I'm extremely passionate about and, and one that I've vested a considerable amount of, of time and energy over the last several years. But this is my 23rd year in public education and nonprofit management. And prior to coming on board with the um, Barbara Bush Houston Literacy Foundation with the family, I was serving as chief academic officer for the Houston Independent School District, which is the fourth largest or seventh largest school district in the country, um, and really looking deeply at all of the issues that are facing our children and our families. And there's not a more, more important effort to, to really focus on than making sure that children you know, are set up for success before they enter kindergarten and that they have the supports and resources needed to be successful in life. And I realized that it all starts with learning how to read. And so when I had the opportunity um, being asked by the Bush family to help start the Barbara Bush Houston Literacy Foundation, it was an opportunity that I, I, I just simply couldn't say no to. And so for the past five and a half years, I've been working very deeply in the Houston community, uh, bringing diverse stakeholders together um, and, and helping to build capacity around this central issue in our community. Your role in HISD, I'm going to assume, kind of brought a, a spotlight to this, correct? It certainly did. I'm, you know, as the chief academic officer, there are a lot of issues that you have to deal with, from special education to athletics, right. <laughs> um, uh, to multicultural um, um, 
English language learners, English as a second language learners, but they all morph, whether it's math or science or social studies, that you all have to start with a foundation of reading. If children can't um, read, then it's very difficult for them to be successful in really any other subject. And so when we started looking at just our our data and looking at the root causes of um, why children aren't being successful in other subjects, then we started looking at their reading scores <laughs> and then looking at the re- root causes of why low literacy was was prevalent. And it just started to really shine the light that, you know, we really needed to invest more heavily both in teacher professional development and curriculum and instructional resources and books for kids and getting the community armed with resources to play a prominent role in helping to build up. I, I truly believe that low literacy is a community problem and that it requires community solutions. It's a crisis. Marty, you're, you're I'm going to say fresh, not necessarily fresh, but you're relatively uh, close to still being in the classroom. Yes, I am. So maybe talk a little bit about your, your role both in the classroom and what you've been doing. And then we're going to get into a deeper discussion over some of the things Julie mentioned in terms of how literacy does have a fundamental impact, not only in the kids' ability to function in other courses, but how it's going to impact our, our, our community. So I, I, I worked in the classroom. I worked in pre-K and kindergarten classrooms as well as even going into the daycare level for mm-hmm. many years. Um, before I came into this role, and definitely one of the things that I that I noticed is it's not just about quality early childhood, but it's about developing those literacy skills. If they have that, then they're going to be successful later on in their school career. So when I first started in this position, it was um, about making sure that the, our pre-K students in our district were kindergarten ready um, so that they could be successful later on. And as th- as this department and this role has has developed, it's not just about our our own students, but our students in our classroom, but all our students in a leaf. It goes beyond excuse me, it goes beyond our our doors. Um and, and just like you mentioned, Dr. Fig, is professional development for teachers. It is ensuring that families have resources that they need to provide what you know what's needed at home as well. Um, and I do. I do get to spend a lot of time in the classrooms and, and being able to just, you know, pick up a book and read to a child and ask questions and develop vocabulary. And th- that's the way to do it. So, Mari, if you don't mind, the, the, there's going to be people that listen to this that we use in education. We use a lot of acronyms. like We, we say pre-K. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most people understand it means pre-kindergarten. We assume that, right? Uh, but it also means, you know, it's four-year-olds. And they're they're talk talk a little bit about the how important it is and how teachable a four year old is. I mean, why is it so important to the average person out there who's spending their tax dollars? And they and they complain to me about you know either high, high taxes or taxes going towards things that don't really matter. Why is it so critical that we reach four year olds? Well, it, the prime for it, brain development really does say that those first four or five years is when they, they whatever they learn during those years is what they'll be able to carry on later on. Um, and, and it's just things like, for example, reading to them, singing, playing with them, talking um, during those years will help give give them that, those foundational skills that, that are necessary to later on be able to do it. And you're right, pre-K is four-year-olds, but it's it's about that preschool before they start kindergarten and before they start their, their formal um, academic life. And HD, if I can just build off mm-hmm. of that, you know, there's been so much brain research, you know, with all of the new technologies now in the last decade, um, looking at infants and, and 
and infant development and oral language development, which is the first kind of mm-hmm. skill that sets you up for learning how to read. Well, a, a child's brain is 90 percent developed by age five. Mm-hmm. And so I would argue, you know, why aren't we investing even earlier yeah. um, from from birth? And so that's why it's so important in one of our efforts. I mean, Mrs. Bush, she was a champion for family literacy because she believed, you know, firmly that, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to capitalize on early brain development of a child, but also teaching um, uh, parents in many cases how to read at the same time. So learning together was kind of a double impact, a double whammy. And so more and more now I see, you know, that this importance of making sure that we have as many four-year-olds enrolled in pre-kindergarten programs, quality pre-kindergarten programs, but even goes beyond that to what are we doing to help parents be able to have access to high-quality early childhood education programs, both in licensed child care centers or early child care centers, um, but also what can we empower them, what tools and what information can we empower parents to be their child's first and most important teacher. And so really that zero to four is way more important than the high school years, quite frankly. Yeah. And I think uh, people that listen to, to, to that uh, will probably agree, but there's a there's this this conversation that gets bantered around, whether it's a political conversation or a financial conversation or even a philosophical conversation about, you know, when do schools take over? You know, at what point does the parent have to be held responsible or accountable? And uh, I'm curious as to either one of y'all's comments on on that reaction by some as to why why should the school system or let's just be quite frank. Why should the taxpayer pay for uh, the role that the parent should take? Why should the taxpayer pay for that? I'm not implying I believe that, but you hear that, right? Well, the phrase in, in loco parentis. Yes. I mean, in place of parents, that's what schools were built upon yeah. was to take, you know, uh, to take care of the child and to make sure that they're in great care, that they're in a safe and healthy learning devi- you know, environment. Um, and I'm not saying that we need to have every every kid out of the womb yeah. <laughs> come and enroll in a, in, a, in a brick and mortar <laughs> building either. Um, but it's really what kind of systems of supports as a community, what kind of infrastructure, what systems of supports using all of our available resources, whether it's through public libraries, through community centers, um, where are where are parents going to get information? Where can they access resources to sp- support their child? But how can we make sure that we're raising their awareness um, of the important role that they can play and that they can, to Maddie's point earlier, read, sing, talk, play to their children. But if they don't have books in their home, we need to, how can we arm them with those tools and resources? How can we take um, playtime and make it, make it constructive, enjoyable playtime that's interactive where, where there is learning that's occurring um, rather than sitting them in front of a television? And so I think there just needs to be a more heightened and elevated awareness as a country about the important role that parents play, but also the extension that a parent doesn't stop being a parent when they turn their child over to a teacher, you know, in pre-kindergarten or kindergarten, that they're still, that learning needs to occur outside of the school walls and beyond the seven and a half hours that typically a, a kid is in a brick and mortar school. And so how, how do you continue to advance that learning, that growth and support the development of what they're learning in school in the home? Mari, Mari, what was your? Well, go ahead. Were you going to add something? No, I just I agree completely. It's it's beyond beyond what's happening in the classrooms. It's once they go home after school. You know, it's those children that are in in early childhood centers. What can we do to help um, those teachers right. be aware of what 
kind of um, the literacy they need to be teaching them, what kind of make sure that the, the play is purposeful and it's planned so that it is it does serve um, its purpose. When you were in the classroom, when a four-year-old showed up to your classroom as a pre-Ker, you know, we'll talk about the half-day, full day and all that in mm-hmm. just a little bit. But just so this this call to arms or call to action that, that I think, uh, the, you know, the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation of Houston had a lot to do with with the report y'all put out about just the literacy gaps across our city. When kids show up, what what did you see? What was telling about the the needs that they had that you were that we were asking you as a public educator to fix? You know, we I saw sometimes things like a child who was not able to to open a book and pass the pages. Right, never, so they've you, never seen a book. They never they've never been exposed to to books or you know being really? read aloud to. Um, also, things like even communicating, not using complete sentences. At four-year-olds, you should be able to have a complete sentence and communicate, and not sometimes you didn't have that, um, especially nowadays with TV and, and uh, devices yeah. and things like that. It's even less that oral language is being developed. As, a, as teachers, we had to make sure that we're giving them all that background, all those emergent literacy skills that they, they should have come with but they don't have, but at the same time meet... Yeah. Our curriculum. So does the does the curriculum in Texas expect? Does it does it assume that the child is showing up in kindergarten ready for kindergarten? Do we start at a place that we're assuming that as a state? I think our curriculum ex- has that expectation, um, but that's not always the case. I mean, kids every year. I mean, kids every year, whether it's kindergarten, first, second grade, you, you name it, they're coming to our into our classrooms at varying levels. I mean, here in Houston, we have a number of kids, far too many, that are coming a year or two behind developmentally by kindergarten. Well, then we can obviously already start tracking the achievement gap Mm -hmm. at that early age. Mm -hmm. And so it still goes back to the question of what are we doing in our community to help prepare families, whoever the primary caregivers of those children are, to let them know that, hey, you play an important role in setting your child up for success and if they don't have the, the confidence or the information, then we need to have a system to enable them to develop those skills and to, and to have that confidence. And I think part of it is, I mean, we, we have a partnership with the, Houston, the Children's Museum of Houston, and we were working on a program um, called Welcome Baby. And we did a pilot with hundreds of um, families, and we asked them in a pretest, you know, whether or not they felt that their child, that reading to their child before the age of four would make a difference. And you would be surprised how many, about 70 percent said it did, 30 percent said it didn't. And so while it might seem high, um, it's still not enough. And so you would think everyone that that reading would be would be fundamental, but they just didn't know that their child at the age of two could be absorbing all of the information that would be conveyed to them through talking, singing, reading. And the fact that reading a book is critically important because in, in a variety of ways, it also helps to a expose children to words they wouldn't normally hear in a conversation. And so vocabulary building is, again, a central point for reading comprehension levels. And so all of these things, oral language, vocabulary, reading comprehension, reading independently, all scaffold up. But it all goes back to how, how much, how many words these children are being exposed to and the types of words they're being exposed to very, very early on. And so giving parents this information, shouting it from the rooftop, but demonstrating also 
the types of activities and, and, and modeling that through professional development and through parent engagement sessions, which I know a Leaf Independent School District has invested, you know, funding in. It's just it's paramount. No, and I was just going to say we believe in that. It, we even providing resources to our families. We know you have multiple jobs. We know you have the best intentions, and so how can we help you meet you where you're at? And for example, one of the things that we've been doing for the past few years is we we purchased Ready Rosie, which is an online tool that you know they, it sends parents videos every week on how can you interact with your child, how can you build that vocabulary, even doing something as simple as maybe uh, uh, doing a peanut butter sandwich, going through your pantry or going through the grocery store, sitting in the car, having a conversation with them. So it's nothing that you have to spend all this time doing because we know you're busy. We know you're just trying to put food on the table. So what can you do? And so that's something that we're working on as well. Is your experience as a pre-K teacher, I mean, does the pre-K teacher feel the Describe the stress or the pressure or the weight that a pre-K teacher feels when they get these children. They may have 20 of them in the class, and they all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different languages. The, the pressure that's put on them to get them kindergarten ready, right? It's huge. It's huge right. because that's what we talk about. We say we, we, we measure you at the end of the year, at the beginning of kindergarten, to see, you know, how did the, these students, how do they do? And you could have, you have... A, multiple levels of students coming into your classroom, children who are not nonverbal, children who are speaking a different language, children with so many other issues going on at home, and then you have to provide You're supposed to the fix language. them. You're, right? Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what we're supposed to do. Some people expect us to fix it. Mm-hmm. To, they work. They, our, our pre-K teachers work really, really hard. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Not to mention the classroom management strategies oh, yeah. and we skills. Talked we haven't talked about classroom management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so having those routines at home helps set, help set kids up for a routine at school. And so, I mean, again, it's not just about the skill development from the standpoint of an academic skill development, but it's that socio-emotional development and preparation that's equally as important for setting kids up for success in school. There's nothing like a crying kid <laughs> who, you know, is disruptive and, 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 and then you have 24 or 23 of them in your classroom at the same time and learning is supposed to be occurring and so, again, it's what, what, can, what can parents and what can primary caregivers do to help set that child up for success ex- academically and developmentally? If you've ever raised a four-year-old, imagine having 20 of them <laughs> in a room for seven or five hours or seven hours. Or, it's my, a lot of fun. I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> well, God bless you. Yeah, God bless the teachers <laughs> who choose to do that um, as a profession. Um, but it's, it's certainly a calling and it's a noble calling. And it's, oh. and it's true what you say when, you know, when you go talk K to 12, there's content levels that you have to, content um, skills that you have to teach them. But in pre-K, when you look at, for example, we, we follow the Texas pre-K guidelines, there's a whole area that's a whole um, content, which is all uh, social emotional skills. So you're not just teaching how to, how, you know, literacy and teaching mm-hmm. math and teaching science. You're also teaching, you know, those uh, self-awareness, self-control and social emotional skills. How to behave. Working like, with other children. Working with others, yeah. Sharing toys, the things that... Sharing is a big one in pre-K. <laughs> I know. It's a big one in adulthood, too. <laughs> so, Julie, your, your role with the Bush Foundation, talk a little bit about the emphasis that it's placed on this, and then some of the things that that you've seen that give you hope or optimism or that at least this region has recognized the problem. That's one thing. Now, what are we doing about it? 
Talk a little bit about what you're seeing from your perspective. Sure. When I came on board the foundation five and a half years ago, when the family started the foundation, the very first thing that we did was was to enlist some expertise from Deloitte Consulting, gave us a pro bono team, and we called upon the community over diverse stakeholders to come together to create um, what ended up being a, a special report called Houston's Literacy Crisis, a Blueprint for Community Action. And the report does two things. One is it outlined the problems that we have here in our own community with low literacy from kindergarten entry all the way to our adults in which here in Houston, one in five Houston adults are functionally illiterate, meaning they have a struggle getting by day to day. They read below a fourth grade level. And so that's a huge number when you talk about our 4 million people who live in the Houston community. And so we, um, the second part of the report is a plan of action. And so it outlines goals and um, evidence-based strategies, but also practical steps that we as a community can take. And Mrs. Bush always believed that everyone can play a role. And so our role in the, in the community through that work really helped to shine the light on what role could the foundation play. And, and again, it all kind of worked out well because we were developing this plan, but we were also figuring out what position, what role could we as a foundation play. And, and it really has been one of building, um, being a champion and a convener. And so we have been um, able to raise awareness of the importance of the issue, but also continue to bring people to the table and invest in evidence-based solutions that work. And so I'm really optimistic. I'm always an, an optimist anyway, but optimistic because the community has come together in, I would say, in probably unprecedented ways from business leaders all the way to, edu- you know, to educators in, the, in everywhere in between from government officials and and nonprofit organizations, philanthropy coming together to say this is a critical, you know, recognizing that, A, we have a problem. And so, like anything, to, 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 you have to have recognize and take ownership of a problem, but to come together and, and find solutions. And so we have seen just a little bit of growth um, in, in reading over the last couple of years. Um, it's not to the point where we're, we're we're accelerating at the rates that we want, but we also know that it takes time to build the foundation and the infrastructure um, for success and to, and to catalyze that. And so I, we're really starting to see a little bit of movement on, on reading achievement, but it's been more of we're putting systems and capacity in place um, to change the trajectory, and we're seeing more value and emphasis placed on investment of resources um, where it's most needed um, with our most needy um, underserved um, and vulnerable children, um, as well as making sure that there's a system support for educators um, to have the right strategies in place, to have the right resources in their classroom. But again, figuring out how can we engage the broader community in this issue? Because again, this is a community problem needing community solutions. Marty, do you see some of the work that Julie's describing? Is it beginning to filter down to the classroom? I mean, are you sensing that from your perspective that... I think so. I think there's more awareness on the issue than in the past. Well, maybe you know? maybe talk about ALEAF, because I, I say this quite often, that, you know, ALEAF's a good school system. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we do a good job. Kids graduate from this district are pretty well educated. And even in a good system like ours, uh, early childhood pre-K was, was an area in which we, we didn't do very well. And it wasn't because we didn't... We tried and didn't do very well. We just didn't pay attention to it which is embarrassing to say, but over the last five, seven, eight years, 
in large part to, to, to the report that you guys put out. But just as the data begins, you know, we just begin paying attention to why are kids not reading on grade level by third grade? What, what, what is happening here? So as a district, we've, we're not nearly where we want to be or where we're going to be. But I think the first thing for us was to admit we had a problem. You know? <laughs> Aleph, you, you, you know, you admit first step of a Houston, we step. have a yeah, problem. Yeah, Aleph, we've got a problem <laughs> here. And, and the problem isn't the kids. It's not the teachers. It was the fact that me as a superintendent and other leaders, we hadn't paid attention to it. And we'd asked someone else who was doing three other things to, oh, by you, on, mm-hmm. in your spare time, make sure we got pre-K taken care of, mm-hmm. which is asinine, just absolutely asinine. Just, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about what ALEAF has done and what you personally, and you deserve a tremendous amount of credit, you and, and, your, and your team, your big team, I always, I call it the <laughs> department. I call it <laughs> the department, and she's got like two people. <laughs> Bless her heart. But anyway, talk about what we've done. And, I, and if you don't mind, talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier, which is the public-private, because half of our four-year-olds are not in our school system right now. That's right. At least half. They're, they're somewhere. Mm-hmm. We're just not sure where they are. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that and the emphasis that we've placed on it and, and maybe some of the things you see that gives you cautious optimism. Just even seeing the results. Now we sit down, we, we work specifically with pre-K teachers. When I first started in this position, one of the things that I heard from the teachers was we, we just want professional development and training geared towards us. They knew and they were aware that their grade level was different than anybody else's. And they kept saying, we don't want to be, we don't want to be in a pre-K to second grade training. We want things specifically towards us. So we've been able to do that, provide them very specific training just for, just for pre-K, pre-K teachers. We've also been able to um, provide them with resources through grants that we have acquired uh, through the state and the Texas School Ready grants and things like that. We've been able to get resources for them as well and, and get them equipped with what they need in order to be able to to provide um, the the education they, that those students need. We've also worked um, closely with because we realized not all not all the kids are here. When you look at kindergarten and their numbers, we have kids in the community that are not in our in our classrooms. We serve pre K students that are eligible. And so we know there are other four-year-olds out there, and what can we do to help them as well? Because ultimately, we're all in charge of kindergarten readiness, whether they're with us or not. And that's what we, that's what we felt. And so we've, we've developed partnerships. We did a, uh, through the Texas Pre-K Planning Partnership Grant. So we have a specific partner, a partnership with one uh, private provider in our area. And so students that are eligible and that live like a in daycare, Ailey, A daycare provider. A right? daycare provider, yep. Yeah. And they're... There are students, those students that are enrolled, the name is Grandma's House, for example. And so those students are our students, but they're located there. Um, we also have, through the Texas School Ready Grant, we have, we're serving, I want to say, over 36 teachers in 23 daycare centers. And we, through that grant, we were able to provide them coaching and professional development materials for their classrooms. Um, they meet with the directors quarterly to talk about these are some of the things that we're working with your teachers. And so we've we've it's been a lot of work and and with that department now it's grown because we have a coach and a a coordinator for that project but it's been we've seen the results when we look when we track the data which we've been doing in the past few years um yes our students that are in pre-k are doing better with than students that are not with us but the students that were in that texas school ready those daycares and those classrooms that we've been working with those students are also outperforming other students so it's working and and like you mentioned, Dr. Fink, it's not where we want to be yet. We have very high expectations for ourselves, but we're seeing the growth. 
And so that's that's important as well. We were able to do, we just did this past weekend, an early childhood event um, where we provided professional development. We, were, we worked collaboratively with the Children's Learning Institute as well as Collaborative for Children and the Texas Workforce Commission, and we put this event together. We had training for them. Um, and piggybacking on something you said before, the, our most successful uh, session was the one we offer for infant and toddlers because they're also thirsty for information. And so we're, we are starting <laughs> like very sponges. <laughs> so that, that's why they're thirsty is because they're sponges, and sponges like to soak up things. Yeah, that's that was, right. Yeah, I know we were all parents. Heck, I was an educated parent, and I didn't have a clue how to deal with the infant or a toddler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you just kind of do what comes natural. And That's right. So how would how'd the event go? Was it was it, it was very successful? Well attended and yes, it was. It for? was the first time we've done it, and we had we had a good turnout. We had a good turnout, even with the weather the way it was. Right. It was a good turnout. So what it tells you, I guess, and Julie, you know this better than 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 we do, but there is a thirst for assistance out there, right? There's parents and there's families who are slowly beginning to recognize if I don't take care of this little infant or toddler then my child's going to enter kindergarten well behind other kids. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're they're hungry for knowledge and the resources. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than saying, "Hey, here's how to go, here's how to read to your child," and then they go home and they don't have any books. Yeah. So you have to couple the knowledge and the information and the strategies with those resources. And and parents again, you know, some some of it is they just don't know that they are are playing a valuable role or can play an even bigger role. And so it's just that awareness and then being able to scaffold the resources on top of that to help them be successful. And, um, you know, we've done things, and, and I think a lot of it because of the dynamic Houston community. I mean, we are the most diverse city in the country. We have a huge population, you know, a significant number over um, up to upwards of 80 percent of our children are on for the National Free and Reduced Lunch mm-hmm. Program. Poverty always plays a role in education. And so it's how do we overcome some of the root causes like poverty and also understand that there's a lot of barriers for parents to access resources. And Mara, you mentioned it earlier. Many of them are working they're, they're, they're working multiple jobs just mm-hmm. to earn a living wage. And so that access and transportation is oftentimes an issue. Um, housing stability is an issue, and it comes into play when kids are moving around from school to school, which is a very big issue in A-Leaf because of all of the apartment complexes. And you're there. a lot of families are rent hopping. Yep. That means they're also going to different schools, whether it's in the, in the district or, or in um, contiguous um, districts. And so there are a lot of sort of root causes. And I love to say, you know, remind everyone that, I mean, we've put a man on the moon here in Houston. We have put, um, we have put a man on the moon. Surely we can come together <laughs> and help every kid to read. Um, but again, you know, people say, oh, why is it so pervasive? Well, it's pervasive, but it's also complex. It's a complex, you know, issue to solve, not because we teachers don't know how to teach kids to read. It's not, that's not really the problem. I mean, we're providing them with the support, but it's, it's more importantly, it's just, it's a complex because of all of the root causes. Chronic absence is another one. And so it's how do you take all of these root causes and help then provide meaningful systemic strategies to transform this issue? And so that is really why it's so hard to move the needle. Mm-hmm. 
And and so I don't want to sugarcoat it and say, oh, it, we can leave it up to the schools if we provide better, you know, resources to the teachers. Well, yeah, that is going to make a difference, but it cannot be this only the solution. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was going to go there, um, you know, the half day versus full day pre-K. And for those that listen to this that don't realize it, the state of Texas funds for four-year-olds who qualify um, half of a day. So if a district if you live in a district that offers full-day pre-K for four-year-olds, you as a taxpayer and your school system are paying for the second half of the day, if you will. So there's no there's no magic bullet, obviously. Mm-mm. You know, we, we advocate and we will continue to advocate for full-day pre-K funding because we believe it's that important. But that's not in and of itself the answer. And it's a it's a part of it, but it's it's not the answer. And and I guess the it begs the question, you know, short of us picking the baby up at the delivery room and asking the mom and dad, what'd y'all name it? Yeah, I wouldn't really suggest that, HD. No, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you, can to, you can go to jail for things like that. Uh, even if it's in the name of literacy, that's not, that's frowned upon, right? But, but, uh, but hypothetically, even if we took children at a younger age in the public school system, we're still going to have these fundamental root causes of, of issues. And, and Madi knows this, uh, we have so many children in, our, in the Yaley School District who are coming into our country for the first time. You know, we use the example of the Burmese children who come from Burma, who maybe six weeks ago was in a refugee camp somewhere in Europe. And next thing you know, we're plopping them down in an apartment complex in Aleaf and putting them in the classroom. And, and as you mentioned, some of them have never even sat at a ch- in a chair Let's just open a book. Mm-hmm. Or, and I'm not trying to make excuses or I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to paint a realistic picture of what our teachers are up against. Not A-Leaf ISD. I don't even mean that. I mean the individual adults who have chosen to teach, right? That's correct. It's the, it's, the, it's the man or the woman who's in that classroom, most likely a woman, in that classroom working with these kids who come with these, you know, challenges we can't. Well, it's not uncommon to find schools in 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 greater Houston area that students speaks anywhere from 60 to over 100 different languages. I mean, it's just that, I mean, it's just that pointed. It's Yeah, I I walked, I was in one of our schools not too long ago, and there's a teacher walking her third or fourth grade class to lunch. I don't know where they were going. 21 kids, 13 languages spoke in her class. Just that one class. 21 kids and 13 different languages spoke. Sounds about right. In fourth grade, and we're going to, well, anyway, don't get me started on, on that. But, Monty, but it, back, adds, it, it adds ahead. a whole other oh. layer of we, we talked about 80 percent that are in the free and reduced lunch. But then you talk about it's almost half of our of our students are have us. They're English language learners. Yeah, so they don't speak English. They don't speak. So try try do try doing teaching them everything you need to teach them. And they're learning right. the language as you're going along. And we want to celebrate our diversity. And I think part of it is, is I think parents who speak a second language don't feel the confidence or have the knowledge that they can't, they should be reading and singing and talking to their kids in their native language, that they don't feel like that that's a valuable part of their education, talk of their about, child's education success. And it goes back to really brain development. I mean, there's yeah. been so much um, um, resources, uh, research. I mean, Pat Cool, the work that she's mm-hmm. doing is just incredible, where she's looking at infant brain development and monitoring, and she's having um, people of speaking different languages speak to infants and toddlers in the machine in this big machine that bo- monitors their brain development. And she's noticing, I mean, that though that the children who are exposed to multiple languages, their brain is just is growing. And so it, it just it it's proof. It's proof that parents, even if they can they speak another language, it's paramount for them mm-hmm. to talk, sing, and ring read in their native language, regardless of whether or not they know English. 
And and so it's they need to continue to play that role throughout their education, but also, you know, have that connection to the parents or the teachers to know and help them with their strategies, with other strategies. So, again, you know, we need to celebrate our diversity, but it also it does add to sort of the complexi- complexity of the education system, um, you know, here in our community. You know, in, in our district, we, we look at, we offer dual language across many of our campuses, and we're even considering expanding that with, with the board's approval. But one of the challenges we have, I hear our Patty Cantu, who oversees our second language program, I hear say this all the time that if a child shows up to pre-K, for example, they're not literate in any language, much less the English language. What challenges does that provide as opposed to the child who may show up speaking Spanish but be very literate in Spanish? Well, because if if you're literate in your own language, it doesn't matter if it's not English. At least you have a foundation. You have something to build on. If if you're not literate at all in, in any language, then it's that much harder. You have to... You have to start from scratch. You have to overcome the illiteracy of not having a foundation. And then, oh, by the way, we got to teach you English, mm-hmm. which yeah, I'm, like, I'm giving me a headache thinking about this. It's just the, the complexity of it is is so challenging. And you do see that in our in our community. You do see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the diversity. You're right. I mean, the diversity is what makes us tick. But if we don't if we don't get the diversity correct and, and, and educate the diversity, mm-hmm. then it's not going to tick. And it's what Dr. Fink said. You have to, that's when you work with the parents. Yep. Even before they're with us, you have to educate them. And these are some things you can do with them at home. And no, you don't need to teach them how to read. We can do that. But here are some, some things you can do with them um, that will get them literate, that mm-hmm. will build that foundation that we can then teach them how to read. Young, and it'll be a lot young, easier. Excuse me. Uh, young children are prime for learning multiple language. Mm-hmm. I mean, our American education system is completely <laughs> backwards. backwards. And someone <laughs> said, oh, well, if you were a queen for a day, what would you do? And I said, well, I would absolve the requirement that high school students have to take two years of foreign language. And I would take those resources and put them in the early years. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We're, work, we're working on that. Okay, good. But that, yeah, if you're, yeah, for those out there, if it sounds like we're being critical towards the pub ed system, we are on this issue. Mm-hmm. Why we're waiting to a, a kid's 15 years old introduce them to a foreign language is absolutely, I, I don't know who can defend it. I mean, it's nice to know their culture and it's nice to know their, another country's beliefs and all that. But in terms of truly. But that should, go, that should carry forth in their entire education, not at the end, we're, not the end of the, we're the only 11th, country, and tw- not in 11th and 12th grade. Yeah, we're the only country in the world that doesn't that does it the way we do it. I mean, you go to any European country, any Pacific Island country, and they're speaking I, English as their... English, and, English right. since I started school. That's right. Well, when you you mentioned that, you know, ALEAF has dual language programs, when you look at the academic outcomes for those kids, yeah. I mean, even I mean even nationally with high-quality dual language programming, those kids are going to fare well academically across all subjects, not just in those languages, about across all subjects, and they're more likely to be employable. That's right. That's and and have and to earn a living wage and to go on to college. I mean, there, it's just it's that foundational success. And we come back to why we all came together here today, which was around setting kids up early for success in school, career, and life. Mari, if you had one, you had one wish that you wanted to communicate to families in the Ailey area who are either they have a one year old or a two year old or a three year old, and maybe they don't. They're not sure what to do. What what do you what do you suggest and they do? 
Read to them. Talk to them. Talk with them. Play with them. Just spend say, time with say them. Say that again. Talk with them, right? Talk with them. Yeah, we're not talking at them. Talk with them and play with them. Read to them don't put from them the in, moment they're born. Don't put them in front of a TV or a computer no. monitor or put a phone in their hand. Or No, devices are great, but they're not going to, they're not going to make our children literate. Julie, what, what would yours, from your perspective, be working across this entire region? And For parents of young children, I would just say don't be afraid to ask for help. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of work also. We didn't mention this sector, which is the health and medical profession right. sector, which plays a huge role. I mean, when you think about babies being born and then them having to go and back and get those well-child visits through their 10, you know, they have about 10 different visits. Well, pediatricians can play a critical role in helping to educate parents. They're a trusted source for information. Um, that's where par- parents go and take their young child. And so we really need to build and think about where where are parents going, who are their trusted sources for information, whether it's the pastor, whether it's the doctor, whether it's a neighbor, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. a teacher. I mean, it could be a teacher. Where are they going for information? Where can they access to resources? And we need to build that knowledge base and that system of supports in a much, much greater way. I know the the, the early matters initiative that was put forth. I've talked about it before with, with others on this on other episodes. But yeah, you walked in that room and there was probably 65 or 70 people and three or four of them came from the medical field. They were parents. If they don't believe anyone else, they're going to believe their child's doctor. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. They're, they're going to believe them. And if the doctor prescribes, go home and read a, this book twice a day, call me in the morning, they're going to go home and read that book twice a day. That's correct. Yeah, every pediatrician we would hope out there listening would 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 start writing prescriptions fifteen minutes of reading a day to every parent. Wouldn't that be amazing that if they be, followed that, that advice be, and yeah, write it and make and check up and follow up and that's a follow uh, up calls. Follow up calls. Well, I I I really appreciate you, ladies. In in our profession, if we don't get this right, we're we're setting ourselves up as a community, not only the child, but we're setting our entire structure of a. Of a, of a community and a society up. And so I appreciate, Julie, what, you, what you've done both on the professional side and then obviously on the nonprofit side with Barbara Bush and, and the whole Bush family as it relates to this issue. And then people like Maudry who are, I mean, they're, the, they're in the trenches. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's her and her colleagues, and I know she's not in the classroom anymore, but she's, um, she's, she's, she's doing the, the real work. And my my goal and my role is to try to provide as much resources and support as I possibly can. Um, and when I'm not, I need to be you know be held accountable to that. I need to be need to be told that. But this is a uh, this is a critical issue across our area, across the Houston area, not just Ailey, across across the entire Houston area. So we'll continue talking about it on these types of broadcasts as well as other forums. But um, I appreciate y'all joining me. I really do. Thank you. Been, Thank you for been, having us. been very helpful. So this has been Impact Ed. I'm H.D. Chambers with A. Leaf ISD, and thank you for joining us today. Have a great day.